would you agree with me? Uh, it makes absolutely no difference whether we fill up a chevron or shell. It just makes precisely zero difference. Just choose the one that's closest to you and choose the one that demands the least from your wallet. It just doesn't matter which brand. Would you agree with me on that? And I think the same could be said for many things in our lives which uh, we are constantly told that they make a difference. You know, it really doesn't matter if you go to the market which loaf of bread you pick, which brand, which clothing, which cars, which house. You know, it, in, the scheme of grand, in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. They are more or less all created equal. I know, yes, our whole economy depends on selling to people that these things matter greatly, these little things that we choose. But, you know, it just doesn't make that much of a difference. Can we say the same about the gods? It doesn't matter which god you choose. It doesn't matter which god you worship. Which, uh, it doesn't matter which god you devote yourself to. Are all religions the same? It doesn't matter whether you are a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim. Can we say that about the gods? That it doesn't matter. Well, actually, you cannot say that about the gods, for it would be a great mistake to say that all gods are the same. Because gods are not all created equal. In fact, there is one god who stands uniquely above as the creator, not made, but as the creator, and he stands uniquely exalted and holy above all so-called gods of the world that are created by man. And in this passage, in these two chapters, we see the uniqueness of the God of Israel, who is the creator over all things. And the first thing, the first difference that we see is that our God He is the burden-bearing God. He is the burden-bearing God. Now, as you might remember, these past few weeks, we've been looking at Isaiah's prophecies about Cyrus, the great Cyrus of Persia, who will come, whose conquest of Babylon will result in freedom and homecoming of the exiles. And in these two chapters, Isaiah focuses his prophecies uh, not so much on the coming of Cyrus the Great, but he focuses his prophecies on the fall of Babylon. And as Isaiah prophesies, and as we know uh, from history, it was an unmitigated disaster. So we, uh, we read here, Bell bows down, Nebo Stoops, Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Bell is just another way of saying a bale. 
And Bel in this context is a title given to the chief god of Babylon, Marduk. He was their chief, the, the highest god in their pantheon. And Nebo uh, was considered his son. And what the Babylonians used to do is that they would lead the figures of Marduk and Nebo, his son, um, on a cart in a procession into the city every New Year's Day. And on the New Year's Day, Nebo, who, had, who was known as the god of astrologers, god of knowledge, god of learning, who was known as the god who reveals uh, the will of the gods, Nebo would announce the good tidings of the coming year. So that was the custom and the religion of Babylon. Except on that year when Cyrus came and conquered them, Nebo did not foresee the catastrophe that Cyrus would bring upon them. Oops. That's a pretty big oversight, wouldn't you say? So much for the so-called God of wisdom. The God who was supposed to see far ahead. Nebo was utterly clueless. And he wasn't just clueless. He was also powerless, not only to save the people of Babylon from Cyrus, but he was also powerless to save himself. So here, Isaiah sees Marduk and Nebo, or their figures, being carried away on the backs of weary beasts, hurriedly being rushed out of the city of Babylon in order to escape the onslaught of the Persians. And these so-called gods, they are literally dead weight. What are they good for except to break the backs of poor creatures whose unfortunate task it is to save them? That's what Isaiah is saying here, and that's how he is mocking them. These useless dead weights, unable to save their people, unable even to save themselves, who could not even foresee the disaster that was coming upon them, who now must be rescued on the backs of poor bees. What are they good for? But then again, what did you expect from man-made idols? And against this, this comical and ridiculous realization comes the Lord. And because the Lord is not like them. So chapter 46, verse 3, the Lord says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who has been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Do you see the contrast? These idols of Babylon, Marduk and Nebo, they are carried on the backs of animals because they're helpless. The God of Israel, on the other hand, he's the one who's carrying his people. The idols are born, carried away by animals. The Lord, he's the one who has been carrying his people from their womb, from before their birth, through the womb, even through their old age. 
In other words, this God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, this God is not a burden on people's backs, but he's the one who carries the burdens of his people. And even though Israel still must live through the painful experience of defeat, captivity, and exile, that does not change the fact that God has been carrying them and he will continue to do so. You know, Israel has changed over the years. And if you take the, the, the statements here, the changes they have gone through are significant. It's as if Israel, at one point, a baby yet to be born, and then was brought into the world, grew through its infancy and childhood and through adulthood, and has reached its old age. Israel has gone through many changes, many changing of circumstances, many stations in life, but God remains the same. And he says, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. That's the difference between the gods of the world, the so-called gods of the world, who are nothing but the figments of man's imagination, and the God of Israel who stands above them, exalted and holy as the creator. You know, the idols of the world, this is their pattern, whatever religion, whatever gods. And if you don't want to think specifically in religious terms, our gods and idols are the things that we give our lives and our hearts to, the things that we look to for security for the future. And they have a common refrain. All they say is this, more, do better, work harder, not enough, not good enough. And when the time comes, you call upon them, you find that to your bitter regret, they are not able to save you. But in fact, your whole life given to their service, it's as if you are carrying them on your back. These idols that cannot answer, these idols that cannot speak, these idols that cannot come to your help, you've been carrying them on your back all your life, but not our God. He has carried Israel and he has carried you through every season of your life, and he promises even to your old age, even when your hair turns gray, I will carry you, I have made and I will bear I will carry and I will save. Our God is a burden-bearing God. Secondly, the second thing we see in this passage is if our God is a burden-bearing God, we need to ask, what burdens does he carry? And this passage focuses on two particular burdens that we carry. The first burden is our heavy burden of sin, our heavy burden of sin. So notice that Isaiah chapters 46 and 47 uh, is devoted very uh, centrally to Babylon. And within that context, we meet God who carries the heavy burden of sin. 
So notice chapter 46, verse 8 and 12. He speaks to his people, Israel. Remember this. After speaking to them about the fertility, the impotence of the false gods, the Lord says, remember this. The goldsmith casts it. The silversmith makes it. They have to put it in a place, but they can't go anywhere until you carry it away. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. Notice how God calls his own people. He calls them, you transgressors. And he calls them, you stubborn of heart. And he calls them, you who are far from righteousness. It's not so much that God is a fault-finding God. Actually, that's not the point. But it is that, that Israel, their most fundamental problem is that they are in enmity against God who is holy. They have transgressed his law. They have proven themselves stubborn and unteachable, unwilling to learn and unwilling to change. And consequently, they are far from righteousness. And so in in view of that, the promise of verse 4, I will carry and will save, you realize that is a promise and an answer to Israel's most fundamental problem of existing in a state of enmity with the holy God. Israel, the people of Israel, they are transgressors. They have violated God's will. They have violated God's purpose. And they are far from righteousness. And of course, Israel could not deny this, nor can we. You and I, we cannot deny that that is also true of us. And then comes the promise. Verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. One of, the, uh, one of the most interesting things about Hebrew literature, Hebrew language, is that they frequently use what is known as parallelism. A parallelism is saying the same things in two different ways. So look at verse 12, for example. God calls his people, uh, you stubborn of heart, and he calls them far from righteousness. That's an example of parallelism, saying the same thing in two different ways. So when God calls them, you stubborn of heart, on the one hand, and he calls them far from righteousness, that's two different ways of describing the same spiritual reality. And then look at verse 13, because there we have another instance of parallelism. My righteousness, I bring near my righteousness, and it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. So in, in verse 13, we have in parallel my righteousness and my salvation, and they describe the same grace. And so what God is promising them to a nation of people, to sinners, whose very basic and fundamental issue is that they are separated from the holy and righteous God, who exists in a perpetual state of war 
with the holy God. God is promising them what they cannot offer up to God, what God demands from them. God is going to provide for them what he demands from them. And God says here, I bring my salvation. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. And of course, this was a promise that was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, in whom God's righteousness becomes our salvation. Because you see, in and through Jesus Christ, God becomes the one who provides for his people what he demands from them. The holy and righteous God demands from us perfect righteousness, something that you and I have no power, no ability to offer up to God. So God sent Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, God's perfect righteousness is offered back to God. Jesus lived a perfect life. And he died to receive on his own body and in his own body the righteous wrath and punishment that our sins deserve. And those of us, and we all who come to Jesus by faith, we receive from Jesus that perfect righteousness that is our salvation. You see, our God is not like the gods of the world who say, more, harder, you're not good enough, I need more. Rather, knowing that we cannot ever give to God what he requires from us, God gave us that gift so that in Jesus Christ we give unto God and to him everything that we owe him. That is to say, what God demands from you, he gives to you in Jesus. And that is why Jesus is your burden-bearing God. And that is why Jesus said, Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus talks about his yoke and his burden, we need to understand what he means by that is his gentleness, his humility in which he is kind to sinners, the compassion with which he heals broken people. That's what he calls his yoke, and that's what he calls his burden, inviting you, inviting us to live with that, to live with the, the profound awareness that Jesus is gentle, he is humble, he is compassionate and is gracious. And these things, we are, uh, through these things, we are meant to realize and say, you know, if that is what Jesus puts on us, if that is the yoke that he puts on us, to know that he is gentle and lowly, if that is the burden that he gives us, why? That's no burden at all. That's the realization that you and I are supposed to come to. 
And Jesus promised to save you, not just for one season, but from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to the old age. Through every stage of your life, through every trial, through every temptation, through every years and days of your life, Jesus, Jesus is the answer to your sin. Jesus is the one who takes away the burden of sin from you. So that is the first burden that God bears for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we look at the second burden that God carries for us, and that is our heavy burden of suffering. Notice how God promises vengeance against Babylon in chapter 47. These are shocking words. But today, I think we are very sensitive, and we expect God to be only gentle, only forgiving. And so when we come across passages like this, when God describes Babylon in terms of a woman who is being taken away into captivity to be humiliated, to be disgraced, to be violated. We need to remember that is exactly how Babylon treated the people of Israel. When they forcibly removed people from Israel, don't think that it was a pleasant process. It was a violent and vicious process in which Men and women suffered, of course, but women especially. And what God is saying when he says he is going to enact vengeance upon them, he is saying that he is going to return to them their sins, that he is going to enact perfect justice, and he says he will spare no one. But very important that you recognize that when God promises vengeance, These are not the words or the work of a merciless God. But in chapter 47, verse 3, he says, I will take vengeance. And in the very next verse, verse 4, his vengeance is described as the work of our Redeemer. The Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. In other words, God's vengeance upon Babylon is God mercifully carrying the burdens of his suffering people. Let me explain. Look at chapter 47, verse 6. God says, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You show them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. Yes, it was God's sovereign hand and will and purpose that brought Babylon against Israel. Israel has sinned repeatedly, consistently, stubbornly, and God brought Babylon against Israel to discipline Israel. And yet Babylon was vicious violent, merciless toward Israel, did terrible things against Israel. And I find it incredible 
that the one thing that the Lord specifically mentions is that the Babylon, on the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. God's heart is tender toward the elderly people. And it angered him. It filled him with rage that Babylon burdened his elderly children with pain and suffering. And Babylon's attitude is perfectly summarized in verse 10, chapter 47, verse 10. The Lord says, You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, No one sees me. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. That is to say, the Babylonians, they live as though there are no moral consequences. And they saw themselves as accountable to no one. That's what it means when verse 10, it says, You felt uh, secure in your wickedness. No one sees me. There is no one besides me. You see, the violence that they did, the vicious ways in which they, they treated Israel, it's, it all comes from thinking and living as though their actions have no consequences. No one holds them accountable, and they, are, they have to answer to no one. Why? How is that possible? You see, that is, on the one hand, the result of worshiping idols. Because idols have no power to hold anyone accountable. And when you give yourself to worshiping and living for your idols, uh, you inevitably become uh, to live with the mindset, there is no one but me. I don't have to answer to anyone. There are no consequences for my actions. So that is the result of idol worship. And at the same time, it is the very reason why we create idols. Why? Because when we have idols, when we create false gods, when we give ourselves our devotion to things that are not God, it allows us to pretend that there is no accountability for life. There is no consequences for our actions. So idol worship is uh, something that both results in this kind of a mindset of living and forgetting judgment and it is also the reason why we create idols. But God is not like the idols of the world. He is a holy and he is a righteous God. And he is going to return Babylon's sins upon her. And that, that is how God bears the burdens of our suffering. We, we suffer a lot because... The world we live in is an unfair world. We suffer much wickedness, much injustice. Yes, God is always and certainly in control. And God, we know, and isn't it comforting? We know that God will bring good out of even the evils of this world. But it does not mean that God thinks that evil is good. God hates evil, and he hates particularly the evil that afflicts his people. 
And once again, God was angry because on the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. God cares deeply when his children suffer. And he cannot rest until he gives them justice. You know, this is all theoretical if you have never suffered injustice in life. And if life has been more or less pleasant to you, you don't give much thought to people who cry for justice. Uh, You tend to dismiss them. But if you have actually suffered injustice, if you've been treated unfairly, you know how important this is. For there to be something and someone to set the record straight. For someone to give me vindication. And that's the burden that we carry in this fallen, imperfect, evil world. And that is what God promises. And so, whether in judgment or salvation, God is always caring for his people. From our birth, through our infancy, through our adulthood, and through our latter years, when our hairs begin to turn gray, our stations in life change, and the world around us is constantly shifting. But God is constant. He cares for you, and one day, He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that rather than burdening yourself on people, you carry our burdens. And indeed, you lay the burden of our sin, shame, and guilt upon Jesus Christ. And daily you carry our burdens and daily you give us hope and comfort us. So, Father, we pray that we may love no other gods, that we may devote ourselves to no other gods, but that we might love you and serve you and you alone. And we pray, O Lord, that amidst all the things that we suffer and endure, that we may know the deep peace and joy of your powerful and faithful care. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.